Hey, I'm Jim McKelvey, founder of Square, and I just sat with Ennis for a super enjoyable hour and talked about entrepreneurship and how you can do stuff that everyone thinks is impossible. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to this episode of Unmade for More podcast. It's your host, Ennis, here. And today I am so pumped because we have a very special guest. He flies planes, plays the piano, blows glass, and built a multi-billion dollar empire. It's the one and only Jim McKelvey. Jim is most known for co-founding Square with his co-founder, Jack Dorsey who, for those that don't know, is also the co-founder and CEO of Twitter. Now, Jim is an entrepreneur I very much admire, but it's the story of how he built Square and survived an attack from Amazon that fascinates me. And the story begins when Jim lost the sale of one of his art pieces because he couldn't accept a customer's Amex card. It was also around this time that Jack had been kicked out of Twitter as CEO, so they both got together and decided to solve the problem Jim was facing as a small business owner. And Square was born. A little over a decade later, and Square is a publicly traded company and has an annual revenue nearing $10 billion. I'm excited because today you and I get to learn valuable lessons from Jim's journey and new book, The Innovation Stack. Now, before we get into the show, I want to take a second to thank you for your continued support. If you haven't already, please take a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to see your feedback there. Now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Jim, thank you for making the time today. Hey, thanks. Good morning. Okay. So usually I start by asking uh, all my guests the same question, which is, you know, if there's one topic or concept, you know, relating to either life or business that you can teach the whole world, what topic would that be? But for you, I think it's only right to start with this one, which is what is the biggest difference between being a millionaire and a billionaire? Gosh, for me, almost nothing. Really? It's Yeah. And it, this is weird. And I'll tell you the story. I was driving to my glass studio. This was 15, 20 years ago. I don't, it was a long time ago. Okay. And I was, I was a millionaire, but I wasn't anywhere close to any of the stuff that you see these days. And I <laughs> uh, heard a radio contest where they're giving away 10 grand. And the radio, said, the radio announcer said, uh, just think how $10,000 would change your life. And, and I thought about it and, and I realized that if somebody gave me $10,000, it wouldn't change my life. And I, now I was not rich at the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe I maybe had a net worth of one or $2 million, which I guess, yeah, it's pretty good, but you know, I, mean, I was yeah, above average, right? <laughs> I was still working every day. I was still doing all my stuff. And I thought about it and, and I was like, wait a second, that's an interesting question. Like how much money would change my life? And I thought about this amount. I thought, well, maybe if I had $50 million, I would live differently. Like I would live somewhere else or do, but no, I couldn't because I lived where I wanted to live. I lived in St. Louis, Missouri, which is an inexpensive town. Um, I was heading into my glass studio. Uh, nothing of my net worth is going to change that. I was hanging out with the people I wanted to do. I still had money to travel. I had, I had all the stuff that I needed. Like I just had everything that I could want. And um, so I, the only thing I thought of was that if I had a lot of money, I might uh, buy a better airplane because the airplane that I fly is a piece of crap. It's like 50 years old and, you know, it's really, really, I mean, it's like, it's like a $23,000 airplane. Like it's just it's got this old piece of junk, um, but it's 
perfectly safe and I love flying it and that's what I do. Um, I'm still like, I still have the same airplane. So now, I mean, I don't know how many billions later, like I still live in the same place. <laughs> I still fly the same place. i still hang out with the same people. I'm still in the glass studio. You know, I'm, I, I'm a little, you know, more busy these days, but, um, the difference for me has been almost nothing as far as the money goes, but people treat me way differently. How so? so they, well, they, they, I, I, they all want to meet the money. Like mm. people don't want to talk to me. They all want to talk to my wallet. Yeah. So they, they show up and they're like, Oh, Jim, we really want your opinion. It's like, really? Or do you just want to check? So, um, so that's been weird, but look, you don't get to complain any about, about any of this stuff. I'm not complaining. It's, uh, I've been super lucky. Yeah. No. How do you filter those people in your life? The, the ones that, you know, are genuinely interested in you, Jim, and, you know, just for the, for the check. I don't know. Um, I, I hang out with my old friends. So I, I'm in Chicago today. I flew up here with a buddy of mine, um, whom I've known since eighth grade. Really? Um, okay. I, you know, I've known Jack for 25 years. Uh, I, you know, the, the, the people who are closest to me are all ones I met, you know, sort of pre squares IPO. Um, now I've met a lot of really cool people since that. Um, but the only ones that I really feel comfortable around are the ones who are themselves so rich that they don't like, they're not interested in me for the money. Like, yeah, I've got a few friends like that, but that's kind of weird. Yeah, no, for sure. All right. So, uh, let's get right into it. Um, I'm really excited because we get to, you know, talk about your book, The Innovation Which Stack. Which you read. Thank which you. Which I read. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's uh, the, called The Innovation Stack, Building an unbeatable, unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time, right? From my understanding, and I, and I want to get your input here, uh, an innovation stack is basically dissecting, you know, a successful person uh, or company, right? And reverse engineering the decisions that they made to get to where they're at. So it's like looking backwards on a maze that's completed. Am I way yeah, off? Yeah. Yeah. So I like the maze that's completed analogy. That's, that's a good one. Um, the, the reason I needed the word innovation stack was because I was trying to explain a phenomenon that it was really confusing, which was how did Square survive an attack by Amazon back when we were a startup, not like not now, but like back when we were this tiny little pipsqueak of a company. Um, Amazon copied our product and uh, undercut our price. And when Amazon does that to a startup, the startup dies. Like it just happens 100% of the time, except in Square's case, uh, Amazon was the one that relented. Like a year later, they were literally mailing Square readers to all their um, soon to be former customers. So to explain that, I went on this journey of basically research to find any other companies that that had happened to. And I found there were other companies throughout history that had had the same phenomenon and they all had this thing and I needed to name the thing. And the thing is, is this, it's, I called it an innovation stack, but it's an innovation stack is really a way of creating new solutions. And it's, it's not intuitive. Um, at least it wasn't intuitive to me. So it was one of these things like, oh, I gotta, I gotta explain this. So that's how the books showed up. And, and, and like you said, one problem leads to, you know, a set of other problems, right? And in yeah. Square's, you know, case and maybe your whole, your career as a whole, how did you know that you were on the right track? Because what you guys were doing at that Square was, was kind of legal and, you know, it's never been done before, right? So how, how did yeah. you know that you were making the right decisions? <laughs> well, we didn't. 
I mean, we were making decisions and there, there's the only way you know that you're right is if, if you're copying somebody who you know is right. So in other words, mm. if what you're doing is so similar to what everybody else has done, that you can just do what they did and very much expect the same result, then you're pretty comfortable that you're going to get the same uh, results. In our case, because we were doing stuff that had never been done before, we literally had no idea if it would work, if people would like it, if it would be ultimately accepted. And so we charged ahead without any guarantees. Yeah. And, and, and were there, you know, at any time that you felt like maybe it couldn't be done or you wanted to throw in the towel and, and what kept you going? Well, it was funny because uh, we actually hit that moment halfway through the first day. So, um, you know, uh, the first day was uh, uh, Jack and me, and then we had a programmer that we'd hired. So the three of us were all working together. And uh, I was the weakest programmer of the three of us. So I was doing all the business stuff. And uh, these two guys were coding in the room next to me. And I turned to them and I said, guys, what we're doing is illegal. Like there was like literally within like an hour of looking, I found this specific law preventing this thing, one of the things that we had to do. <laughs> so, you know, and, and that would have been a good day to quit, right? You know, you're halfway through the first day. Um, but neither Jack or I were very sort of convinced that that was a smart law. I mean, a lot of these laws are written, you know, they're, they're laws against, you know, the number of chickens you can keep in your house. Um, in, and I live in a place where nobody keeps chickens in their house. You know, there's, there, there, there are a lot of all, you know, sort of antiquated laws. So this, this was not some sort of, you know, thou shalt not kill like law. It was this uh, technicality that seemed stupid. And we're like, oh, I'm okay breaking that one. So we'll, we'll figure that out later. And, you know, and literally by the end of like the second week, I'd found 17 laws, rules, and regulations that in some way we were violating with each transaction. So, by the, and I, it could have been more than 17. I just remember I counted up to 17. And at that point I was like, come on, I, there's just more stuff. Um, and, but yeah. And, and you guys, <laughs> and you still decided to just go with it. Well, yeah, because we were focused on a problem. We had a goal in mind, which was to create a way for small merchants like myself to have fair access to the credit card system. Like I was, prevented from making some sales because I couldn't take certain forms of payment. And if you're selling something like it's heartbreaking to make something and then have your customer right there and your customer wants to pay you for it and you want to sell it, but now you can't, you know, hook up that last little bit because, you know, they've got an Amex card and you don't take Amex mm -hmm. um, or some other sort of weirdness. So uh, I was personally very motivated to solve the problem and then, you know, Jack was also sort of bought into this because he he saw this bigger vision of a, you know, of a payment being some sort of honest communication where, you know, if you're exchanging value, that's actually information. And he really thought that was interesting. So we were committed to doing it, even though we thought at least initially that it might not be possible. <laughs> yeah. OK, so so I want to get into your childhood. Um, take us back. I know you grew up in Ledoux, Missouri, right? You're the oldest yeah, of St. three Louis, boys. I was, I was born in the city and uh, we moved out to the county when I was uh, in grade school. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, you, you're the oldest of three boys. Your dad was- uh, uh, Two boys. Well, actually, I, I technically have kind of a, I, I technically have one brother, but I've kind of adopted another guy. I've got a half brother. Oh, okay. We call, he, we, I call him a brother, but he's, he's really, uh, 
He's not a biological brother. He's, he, but oh, he, it's, it. it's like they're three boys. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And, and, and your dad was the dean of the engineering school and uh, chemical engineering professor at Wash U. Uh, yep. And your, your mom was a stay-at-home mom, uh, yep. sort of like my mom. Uh, for those listening who are not familiar you know, with your story, can you paint us a picture of your childhood? Uh, pretty idyllic. You know, grew up in this uh, little suburb that was very nice, uh, very little crime, very little poverty, very, you know, just, just this wonderful, like, idyllic little enclave. Um, my father was a wonderful man uh, who, you know, never lost his temper. I never heard him swear more than three times in his entire life. So I knew him for 54 years or uh, 53 years, I guess. Um, he swore three times and they were sort of minor ones, like <laughs> all stuff you could say on TV. Right. That was my dad. Um, mom, <laughs> mom was a different story. Mom was a, this, you know, sort of badass New Yorker who um, I found out later after my mom died that my grandfather had worked for the mafia during prohibition. No so, way. I mean, like this is, <laughs> this is my mother's side of the family. Um, but you know, my mother, um, uh, Loved my father. The family had no problems, like zero problems up until um, after I was in college, my mother started getting depressed and uh, eventually killed herself. And that was sort of the watershed moment in my life, because up until that moment, I basically hadn't lived in the real world. And I hadn't been really aware of, you know, how much pain people go through. And my mother, you know, was a tough person and she sort of hid it from us. Um, she certainly hit it for me, maybe not my dad, but, um, mom was, was tough enough to, uh, to sort of keep her children protected. But, um, that protection was really this huge weakness. So after mom died, um, I, I went through this huge crisis and then I moved to the city to like this bad part of town. Um, uh, like I had bullet holes in my car. Like, wow, really? Uh, yeah. How, um, how old were you at the time? Uh, I was 22, 23, something like that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, actually I was, I thought the car looked better with the bullet holes. Like I, you know, if you look at me, I don't have much street cred, but you know, rolling around (laughs) in a car that's been shot up by a nine mil like that, that, I I felt kind of cool for a while until it all started rusting out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I went, mom's suicide really put me in touch with a whole world, um, that I had not been aware of. And since then I've spent a lot of my time with people who are, um, well, like my friend, Bob, I talk about my friend Bob in the book. Um, so Bob called me two days ago. Um, he, he's been arrested again. Um, uh, so last time he was arrested, he fought with the cops. And so they beat the crap out of him and he shot him. Um, uh, this time, supposedly, he wrestled the gun away from the cop and they struggled, uh, but he uh, he shot uh, the cop. And so they set a huge bail and he told me all this. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> what is he? and, then, and he's like, Jim, I need you to come down and bail me out again. And I was like, God, Bob, I, I shot a cop. <laughs> and. Oh my and, God. I shouldn't be and, laughing, and, but this is... no, you shouldn't be laughing, but this is my friend, Bob. Like this, this is the guys I hang out with, you know? And, 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 and then he said, April fools. Oh <laughs> my God. He, he, he totally got me. And you know, the, the thing you got to know is, is that like, you have to take this seriously from Bob. Like when Bob tells you 
that he's been, you know, like in a physical fight with a policeman and there's been a discharge of a weapon like that's actually happened. Like so when he when he calls you on April 1st to do this, like he set me up so good. <laughs> he totally got me. But like these are the sort of people like I volunteer. Like I love these people. They're they're so genuine. None of them cares a bit about Wall Street or any of that stuff. Um, yeah. And some of them are nuts, you know, but they're wonderful. Yeah. You got to You got to laugh and you got to, you know, have the little crazy. We all have that craziness inside of us. Right. Yeah. 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 And the fact that Bob could call me on April Fool's Day and get me like he got me. He totally nailed me. That, like, that's oh hilarious. My God. Yeah. That, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, so I, I'm really curious. Um, what was the biggest lesson that you learned from your mom? It wasn't to not be afraid. It was to move in the, even though I am afraid, like mom put me in some situations where I was pretty scared, mm. but she always expected that both of us would be able to handle them. So she would, she was, she, I would say she was fearless, but she wasn't fearless. She was a lady who had like terrible fear of heights and would climb water towers just because she didn't want to be the person who couldn't climb if she needed to climb. So, you know, like I remember her, you know, climbing up a water tower um, and, you know, her hands are sweating. So she doesn't have a very good grip on the, you know, the rails. Um, and I'm, I'm like, why are we doing this? She's like, oh, well, I'm really afraid of heights. So I want to climb this water tower, which was sort of that lesson of even if you're afraid. And, and look, this kind of gets back to what I do in the book. Like if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to do stuff that's never been done before, you are going to be afraid if you're in any way sane, like if you're, cause you're spending your whole life almost always in this nice steady stream of positive reinforcement that everything you do is good. And there's a checklist and there's an expert and there's some credential and there's somebody telling you, Oh, you're doing a great job, you know? And as soon as you start doing something totally different, that's never been done before, you're going to lose all that support. So you are going to go from a moment where you feel very comfortable to a moment where you feel very uncomfortable. Now, the question is, what happens when you become uncomfortable? How do you react to that? And the answer that I sort of learned from my mother is you're going to be afraid, but you can still function even if you're afraid. And maybe that helped us when Square was, you know, breaking 17 laws and rules because like I'd been in situations where I wasn't completely where I was supposed to be. And I was, you know aware of the fact that look some rules you never break uh some rules yeah you can you can you, you can you can let that one go for a while you know um and so i uh i think mom really prepared me for that and then um you know what i tried to do in the book is explain to people look i can't give you a checklist in my book on how to do the thing you need to do that nobody's ever done before you're going to have to figure that part out. But what I can do is I can give you, first of all, a lot of encouragement and all these stories so that when you are there, you will recognize where you are and you will be able to say to yourself, oh, yeah, I read Jim's book and right now I shouldn't be getting, you know, congratulatory calls and emails from all my friends. Like I would expect my parents to call and go, what the hell are you doing? You know, um, because that's what they're going to do. Like if you're doing something, that's really radical. Your friends, the people who love you the most are going to call and say, what are you thinking? Why would you do that? 
come back, come back to the herd, come, come join us where it's safe. Cause like it, and it's not that they don't want you to succeed. It's that they don't want you to get killed. Like they, they're, they're genuinely trying to protect you. And so the people who love you most are sometimes the biggest drag on an entrepreneur because they want to protect you. Well, if you don't even recognize that that's happening, you may just say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to stop. Um, and you don't, you shouldn't stop. I mean, Maybe you should, but like you should at least know that it's possible to do something for the first time. No, totally. That's that's an important point that you just brought up. It's usually the the closest people to us that are dragging us down the most, right? Well, I mean, it's not necessarily dragging us down, but like, and you're not. I'm not blaming these people. Right. Like these are the people who who love me the most. These are the people who tell me when I'm screwing something up. But a lot of times they will do that because in their worldview, which is a worldview that doesn't include doing stuff that has never been done before. Um, because look, you can live your whole life and never do anything new. Copy your whole life. You can be an entrepreneur. You can start a, start a company. You can be super successful. You can be rich. You can whatever, you, whatever thing you want to do, you can copy somebody who's done it before you. But, and this is sort of the main message in the book, like there's probably going to be a time in your life when you encounter a problem that mankind has not solved, they just haven't figured this out. Maybe it's a big problem. Maybe it's a little problem, but nobody's done this yet. Okay. And, and it's a problem. And you can then at that moment say, well, I choose to solve it, but if I'm going to choose to solve it, I'm going to have to take a step off the known universe and, 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 and go into this un un unexplored area. I'm just going to have to do stuff that I don't have a YouTube video to guide me through. Um, and in that moment, all the rules change, all the stuff that you've been taught in some cases works backwards. So, um, so this is really terrifying. And if you're not prepared for it, it's even more terrifying. Um, and I made that mistake for like 20 years. Like I would do stuff at my companies and, and, and it wouldn't work. And I go to my friends who, you know, had successful companies and I'd say, Hey, Howard, how did you solve this problem. He's like, Oh, do this, do this, call this person, you know, and he'd give me like, he'd give me a checklist. He'd show me how to do it. I go back, I do his checklist and it would make it worse. Like it would blow up in my face. And I'd be like, God, I must be such an idiot because this kept happening again and again. And it wasn't until I actually finished the research for the book that I saw the pattern in my own life, which was a, Oh, wait a second here. A lot of the rules reverse. If you can't copy, like if you're in this world of experts and the ability to copy formula that are known to work. There's a whole skill set for that, that all of us really are good at. But as soon as you can't copy, like how do you price a product? How do you hire a team? How do you manage a team? How do you keep performance metrics? You know, how do you go to market? How do you treat your customer? Like all of those things are different and they're meaningfully different. And if you copy what everybody else is doing and you're an innovator, it might blow up in your face. So I, I, like I wanted people to have a roadmap so that if they got into a situation, they would at least say, oh, okay, I don't exactly know what to do, but at least I know that it's possible that other people have done this before. And this is probably a time when I should feel uncomfortable. Yeah. It, it's like, it's like in your book, you say, I think, um, there's way too many people that call themselves entrepreneurs, but really they're businessmen. Right. Yes. And, and, and it's like the being a tourist versus being an explorer. Right. 
yeah. tourists having the, the map, the guides, which is the businessman, the entrepreneurs going out and exploring, you know, is that, is that about right? It is. And, you know, so like, imagine that we're going to take a trip together. I say, okay, pack your bags. Yeah. Gonna, I can pick you up my crappy old plane. We're going to fly somewhere. You, hey, let's and, do and it. Go, I'm down. Oh, oh, oh cool. Right. All right. So, I'm gonna, so we can do that. You know, um, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, uh, you've packed for a weekend in a city. You know, you've brought nice clothes and some fancy shoes and, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe some cologne. Okay. Uh, and I land us in a grass strip in the middle of the jungle. You know, and you brought luggage with wheels on it and friggin hair gel and and I brought a Bowie knife and you know some say you know some some salt tablets or something you know first aid kit like 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 the journey you take if you are going to a civilized city you pack differently for that than if you're going out into the unexplored wilderness and this is sort of like the analogy I draw between business people and entrepreneurs I use entrepreneur in its original definition the hundred year old definition that Schumpeter uh, the economist coined, which basically meant somebody who was doing something new, which meant that by definition, entrepreneurs were not copying. And it was this word that he coined because he needed to describe these weirdos. So that's like being an explorer. You don't know what you're going to find in the jungle. You might find, uh, you know, friendly animals. You might find unfriendly animals. Like, can you eat that berry? I don't know. Do you want to be the first to find out? Like, I, you know, that, so um, don't, um, you know, don't lick the frog for the first time. You know, don't be the first person to lick the frog, right? Uh, uh, or maybe you want to. I don't know. There's some good frogs out there, I understand. But you know, the, the point is, if you don't know what travel you're about to take, you pack the wrong stuff. So um, I needed to use the word entrepreneur because, look, today, the word entrepreneur means anybody who started a business. Like I can be a flower entrepreneur. I can set up a flower shop. Okay. Well, flower shops have been around since the middle ages. You know, th this is not a new concept. Coffee shops have been around for hundreds of years. This is not a new concept. Like that in my definition is a business person. The entrepreneur is doing something that has never been done before. Yeah. No, totally. I, I totally agree. And I think social media has like changed it or made it easier for people to to think that, you know, they're they're entrepreneurs because uh, I don't know, because it's cool, I guess. Now, now it's a, now it's a cool thing where, you know, back when you first started, it was kind of the, the crazy thing to, to do. Right. I was I was not cool when I became an entrepreneur. My friends looked at me crazy. They thought I was an idiot. Um, I actually lost some friends because they were so worried about me. They couldn't be in touch with me anymore because it was stressing them out too much. Really? Yeah. I'd lost two friends that way. Wow. And did they, did they uh, end up coming back or did they just, well, I mean, everybody comes back with, now. Yeah, oh yeah. Everybody comes <laughs> I mean, back now. A lot, you know, I, I, one of them has not, uh, there's still one out there, but, uh, I, I get emails from people I haven't met in 30 years. Cause you know, um, well actually right now is admissions time for all the, schools. Um, so I'm getting, uh, you know, if it's, uh, if your kid's on the wait list, I'm probably going to get, a, uh, get an email. yeah, but, but <laughs> I, by I the can't help, by the way, I can't help you. The yeah. School is, 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 I do not control admission to the McKelvey school of engineering. I have yeah. nothing to do with that. That was named in honor of my father. 
know james right is that james yes yes yeah by the way congrats on the um i know there's like a new building the james mckelvey senior hall or something i I, it said it was was gonna open in spring is that is that right yeah so there's a new building in my father's honor and uh they named the whole school after him i considered after my dad and i had the same name so they say it's named after me but i say it's named after him so Nice. Doesn't matter. Speaking of college, I know you you, you went to, like you just mentioned, Washington University in uh, St. Louis uh, and got a degree in economics and computer science. Now, what I found interesting was as a freshman, you had no experience programming or working on computers, but you wrote your own textbook. What prompted you to do so? Oh, I got pissed off. I got upset. It was one of those things. I was taking a class as a freshman and the textbook was terrible and it was written by the professor, which really bothered me because, you know, the professor was making like five bucks a copy or some sort of, you know, royalty on this really terrible textbook. And I, I just blurted out to my roommate. I said, look, I could write a better textbook than this thing. And, and he said, well, why don't you? And I was like, okay, I will, you know? And, and so I spent my freshman year rewriting the textbook that I didn't like and um, got the darn thing published. I mean, I got, I got the book, I got the book published and then the publisher asked for a second book. Um, so by the time I was a sophomore or a junior, I had two books that were, you know, legitimately published, not like the self-published stuff, but I mean, like this was the publishing house was paying me royalties and giving me an advance to write this book uh, or these books. And that, um, that had this weird effect because it, it gave me this reputation as an engineer that I didn't really deserve. I'm not that good an engineer compared to really good engineers. I'm not, I'm not in their league, but I was always put on their teams because I had this reputation. So I learned how to work with people who were way smarter than me. And that was probably the best thing I learned in college was just how to, how to be on a team where I'm the weakest link, but I can still make everybody stronger. Like I am, I am the best assistant you will ever have. Like if you're working with me, like if, if you have something that I need you to do, yeah. Everything in your life gets smooth. Like your laundry gets done. Like I would get dates for people. I would like it, it like every other problem in your life disappears when you're working with me and all of a sudden all you have to do is concentrate on the one thing that I need you to do. It's just like I've been doing wow. that since I was 20. Yeah. That's that's my skill. That's I'm, an interesting I'm a, perspective I'm a on leadership. Personal yeah. assistant, you know. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing that. I think it's also really important back to like the textbook is you know, for my listeners to understand that just because, you know, you don't understand something or you don't feel like you're qualified to do so or do something, right? If you're committed, you can achieve whatever it is that you want, right? And you say in your book, commitment uh, can substitute for qualification. Yes. And also uh, your listeners should realize that nobody is qualified to do the first time. Like the first time any thing is done in human history, it is done by somebody who is not qualified. Uh, so like if you land a backflip, like you're, let's say you're the first human in history to do a backflip. Some, somebody had to be it, right? There, there right. was some way back in history. Somebody figured out, hey, I think I could do this, right? That person was totally unqualified to do it. The first time it's done, you are not qualified. So if you feel unqualified, then you have to ask yourself, am I just being lazy? Like, is this something I could get go, go out and get qualified for and be prepared for? Uh, or is it something where I just literally have to be willing to try and probably fail, you know, try multiple times 
until I become the first person in history to do this thing, you know? So maybe nobody's landed a triple backflip, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But like, if you want to be that person, it's it maybe humanly possible. We could probably calculate the biomechanics of it. And maybe you should be the first. Oh, <laughs> but you're not going to be qualified. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Just, just go ahead and try it. Right. Um, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. So, so fast forward after you graduate college, uh, I think it was an 07, 08, um, you know, you, you, you started square, right. With, with your co-founder and friend, uh, Jack Dorsey. And for those who don't know, Jack is also the co-founder and CEO of Twitter. Can you share the story of how you and Jack initially met and how you, you know, reconnected, uh, years after to, to start square? Oh, yeah. So um, uh, Jack's mother, Marsha, uh, yeah. owned a coffee shop in the neighborhood where I told you I lived in a bad neighborhood. Well, Marsha had a coffee shop in sort of a slightly less bad neighborhood that was kind of close. And um, we would go in there and buy chocolate covered espresso beans because this was before you could get uh, prescription Ritalin, you know, out of uh, <laughs> out of vending machines. Um and uh, it's how we kept the, the staff awake. Like that's how we chewed these things <laughs> um, uh, to, to stay awake. So Marsha was, was, you know, affectionately our drug dealer. That's how I, 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 I laughingly refer to Marsha, who's awesome. Um, and she told us that her son liked computers and we were working with computers. And uh, we were actually in a desperate situation. We'd made this huge mistake on a database and needed help. And um, so we hired her son to be part of this uh, sort of SWAT team of people to come in and just help us do this mountain of work with a really tight deadline. And that was uh, for Jack, Mira, right? Your, your that was for your Mira, company. yeah. So Jack showed up. He was 15 years old. He pulled an all-nighter with us the first day at the office. Uh, we sent him home you know, like 5 a.m. He got in all sorts of trouble with Marsha. <laughs> like, it was terrible. Um, but Jack came back. I mean, he – like pulling an all nighter with us made him part of the team. And so, uh, you know, we became, uh, you know, work colleagues and then eventually sort of, uh, friends cause Jack's a cool guy. Um, and then we, uh, started square together 15 years later. Yeah. So, um, like I said, in 2008, Jack stepped down as CEO from Twitter, uh, and you met up in St. Louis. And at the time you were working at a, as a glass artist, right? Yes. How did the idea come about and what, it, what inspired you to start square? So Jack and I decided to start this company and we'd uh, spent a week and a half brainstorming in, in San Francisco. I was going to move out to San Francisco. We'd hired our first programmer already and we were going to go, uh, you know, go build this idea of Jack's, which was sort of this uh, journaling app or something. It, uh, I don't think either one of us was very excited about it, but we, we were sort of kind of out of time because we'd hired this guy and he was starting. So uh, I went back to St. Louis to pack up. And when I was in my studio, I got this order for this piece of glass that I really wanted to get rid of because it had been on the shelf for years and it was ugly, um, but really expensive. Um, yeah, by the way, just because I think something's ugly doesn't mean you get a discount, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, How but, much uh, do those pieces go for, by the way? I'm just curious. Like 2,500 bucks, I think it was. Oh, really? Like that? Piece was. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I know that. Um, so I was trying to sell this piece and I lost a sale because I couldn't take an American Express card. And I was really upset. And um, I looked down at my iPhone, which I was a phone order from a lady in Panama, actually. And um, I thought to myself, wow, this iPhone 
magically turns itself into whatever I want it to turn itself into. Like it becomes a book or a TV or a, you know, like it'll become a GPS if I needed yeah. to. Um, and it wouldn't turn itself into a credit card machine. And I thought, well, I should make it magically turn into a credit card machine. I called up Jack on the iPhone and I said, Hey man, I think I know what we should be doing. Like we should be building something so that I can get paid. Like that's, that was it. I was, it wasn't like we should build this thing to empower people of the world. No, it was like, man, I'm pissed. I just lost a sale. Like I want to fix this. I want to fix this problem that I personally have. So it was, it was a very personal problem. And, you know, I was the focus group. So when I, you know, talked to the team, you know, we, we put together a team to build this, they would always say, Hey Jim, would, could you use this? Do you want this? Do you like this? You know? And, um, and then we found a flower vendor who, uh, who used it, but it was really, you know, it was a glass blower, a flower, flower vendor, and a stunt pilot. That was that was the focus group that that, that built Square. That's funny, and, but and and what I found interesting was, you know, you guys weren't starving. I mean, you you were you guys were well off. You and Jack, you know, could have retired. Oh, yeah, we were both the money uh, that you... we were both multimillionaires at the time. Yeah. So so why you know give yourself a headache and start another company? I mean, well, I mean. Being rich is only interesting if you actually have the ego to spend the money. Jack lived, I mean, Jack was already very wealthy um, for having started Twitter. He lived in a one room apartment because that's where he wanted to live. You know, he could have bought a castle. He didn't buy a castle. I mean, I live in a car, I live in a house with a two car garage and I had to fight to get the two car. Like I, when I bought it, it had a one car garage and I was like, you know, Honey, do you want to park in? Because St. Louis has terrible weather. He's like, you want to park on the street today? You know, I need to charge <laughs> up my car. And we're like, hey, wait a second. You know, we can get a two-car garage. You know, so um, so Jack and I were not, it wasn't about the money. It was about the problem. And look, I mean, it's a payments business and you're touching money. So you have to have good economics. But it wasn't, I, I, you know, going back to that story of me coming into the studio, like the the big lesson of of that radio contest where they were giving away ten thousand bucks, was that no amount of money was going to change the way I did anything. Nothing that counted. Like it wasn't going to change where I worked or who who I hung out with or what I ate or what I you know, like. Nothing was going to change. So at that moment, I decided, well, I guess I'm rich, which was weird because. Like I wasn't rich by any modern standard. I was just like sort of middle class, but because I'm so cheap and I don't care about the expensive stuff, well then money doesn't matter. So you give me more money, nothing changes. So money, like that's my definition of rich. Rich, you become rich at, at the point where I can give you an arbitrarily large amount of money and nothing in your life changes. So Jack and I both hit that point pretty early. I mean, I'm not saying he hasn't changed a little bit in the last couple of years, nor have I, but in the early days of Square, I mean, we didn't, we weren't, we weren't suffering. We, we lived where we wanted to live. We, we hung out with the people we wanted to hang out with. We still do. Yeah. Okay. So, so a few, so a few years into uh, Square, uh, August 13th, actually 2014, Amazon announced that they would be creating a competitor, basically, to, to Square a Credit Card Reader. It wasn't as beautiful as the design that you made, right? Uh, and But, but it they, worked better. Right. They're, they're, theirs actually read the card better than mine did. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and they undercut your prices by, you know, about 30%. Yep. What were your thoughts when you first heard that news? And what was it like going into that office that day? It was like getting, it was like having the doctor come in to your waiting room and say, sit down. And I think you need to gather your family around before I tell you what I have to tell you. Like it was just sheer mortal terror because at the time, no startup that had fallen in Amazon's uh, gun sites had ever survived. Like this was, this was as close to a death sentence as you could get. Um, except that we were so busy. We had so many customers and we were growing so fast that even the fact that Amazon was attacking us didn't change what we were doing. You know, we, we looked at it and we thought, well, what can we do to get Amazon to back off? And the answer was Amazon doesn't back off. They're, they're Amazon. Like they're not, they're not, they're not going to, they're not going to back off. Um, and so like, oh, well, what can we do to fight these guys? And the answer was, well, we got enough problems just, you know, keeping, you know, a million small merchants happy uh, with all their little problems. And so we were pretty busy. Like, well, we can't really do anything else. And, and, you know, so we didn't have any, we didn't have anything we could do. So we just did nothing. Yeah. You just continue to serve your customers and focus on their needs. Yeah. And, and that was the amazing thing because then Amazon a year later, uh, it was actually on Halloween. On Halloween, they announced that they were quitting, that they were giving away. Um, well, they, they were getting out of the business and they were going to give us all their customers. They were going to transition all their customers to become Square customers. Yeah, that was a good, that was, talk about trick or treat, man. That was, that was like the extra big candy bar, you know? Right. Um, first, first, a, first they want to eat your candy and now they're giving it to you. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, got, we, we got a, uh, you know, we got the, the sprinkles on that one. Um, it was amazing. And, and that's, you know, uh, that's what led me to this journey that led to the book and the research and the innovation stack and all that stuff. Because I was like, I was like, I was so happy we survived, but I also had this weird survivor's guilt, you know, like mm. when, like when there's an explosion and 500 people die and one guy lives, like that yeah. one guy has this torture. It's like, how come I'm the guy that didn't get killed with everybody else? Um, and we, at least I felt that way. I felt like, why, why did Square survive? And, and could it, could it just been luck? And I don't believe in that. Like, I'm not, like, I believe in getting lucky, but I don't believe that you can't explain a phenomenon because I'm a scientist mm -hmm. at my core. So yeah. I went on this research quest. It took me two years. And what I finally had to do was I had to find other companies throughout history that had, you know, when they were a startup, been attacked by an incumbent that you would say would just wipe the floor with these guys. And yet the opposite happened, the startup one, you know, and I found all these companies and all of a sudden I saw, saw this pattern. I was like, oh, my God. Um, so then I thought, well, wait a second, Jim, you're being an idiot here because you're studying history and history is really good if you're doing uh if you're uh, being selected, like uh, it's called selection bias. So yeah. you can pick examples from history to prove anything you want. Like if you want to prove that everybody on the planet has uh, grown to be at least seven feet tall, right? Like we can pick enough 
skeletons from selected graves to prove that everybody who, you know, in history has been seven feet tall or tall, you know, like this, this you, could, you could prove anything as long as you're selective enough. And this, this selection bias is really, is really um, hard to avoid because all the people that I was studying were dead. Um, so one of them was still alive. His name was Herb Kelleher and he was the founder of Southwest Airlines. Now Herb is a legend. He was such a great guy. And I couldn't believe it, but he agreed to see me. So I flew down to Dallas with all my research. And I basically laid it at the foot of the master. And I said, I, look, I know you think a tech payment company in San Francisco has nothing in common with an airline in Dallas. But I think your company and my company are basically living through the exact same thing. You just have, you just got there 30 years early. And, uh, and, and he, Herb looked at this and he was like, yeah, he's like, this is, this is what happened to us. He's like, there's some other things that you didn't notice. And I, he explained them to me and I was like, oh my God, that's really cool. And then um, he basically said, how are you going to share this with the world? Like he, he asked me what my intention was with all this research. And, and, you know, it was like getting a homework assignment from your idol. You know, like there's a guy, I mean, I idolized Herb Kelleher. Like he was the, he was a badass to end all badasses. Like he was oh, such a cool guy. You know, he smoked like a fiend. He had a, tat <laughs> he had a tattoo when a tattoo was offensive. Like he put a tattoo on his arm and he was like, I am showing you what I believe. Put it on his arm. Like no, no executive had any ink on him except for Herb Kelleher and the Fortune 500. No nobody's changed smoke through federal reserve meetings except herb keller like herb was a, just a badass to the core and he was a wonderful lovely guy and he told he basically said jim you gotta you gotta share this and i was like oh crap i gotta write a book so that's how the book came to be like i was like it was getting a homework assignment from you know the closest thing i ever had to a you know sort of a mentor yeah and and, and you it was a comic first and he told you hey this is not yes. going to work out. Yeah, right. Exactly. So he, he, um, it was a comic book. I, I cause I didn't want to write a, a, a business book cause I hate business books cause they're deadly boring. Um, so I did a graphic novel and it took me like a year and I called Herb and I said, Herb, you're going to love this. Uh, I was like, I'm making a, uh, a, a graphic novel. And he got real quiet and he was like, that sounds terrible. He's like, that just sounds, I, he's like, I'll, I, I want to think about it. And then he thought about it and he sent me this email basically saying, if you're going to do this as a comic, leave me out. He's like, I, I, I don't want to be, I don't want any part of that. And, and, and he was right. And he, and he was right for the following reason. Comics are for heroes. You tell the hero story in the graphic novel format. Like Herb was one of my heroes. So it, it seemed appropriate for me to make him this caped guy, right? Um, you know, A.P. Giannini. Uh, a. Giannini actually wore a cape because it was back in the, in the 1800s. That was actually the fashion. But like the reason we read comics is to read about the hero. And the hero is different than us. You know, the hero has x-ray vision or bullets bounce off the hero or, 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 you know, at least he's rich. Like even if it's Batman, like Batman's just like a, badass rich dude with like toys that you you'll never get right like these are the heroes they're not like us and to tell the story that i needed to tell 
as a hero story would have been totally off-putting to all the people because what I'm telling you and, and, and the actual essence of the innovation stack is that all of these people, Herb Kelleher, like Giannini, like all these people that I studied who became multi-billionaire world conquering entrepreneur badasses, they all started as sort of normal, clueless, unqualified, regular folks, right? People with no experience in the industry, people with, with no special superpowers. I mean, unless smoking, you know, three packs of cool menthols. Uh, That's pretty impressive, setting. right? <laughs> I mean, Herb had a superpower. He could actually, you know, exhale an entire cloud. Like, like he could build his own cloud if he wanted. Like, you know, like, but, but I mean, like that, these are not heroes. These are people who discover this thing that I sort of discovered usually by accident, but they stumble upon this thing that's, that's insanely powerful. And, and I go through the math in the book of why innovation stacks are so incredibly difficult to attack and why Amazon, powerful as they were, couldn't do it. So, so that was the whole thing. But, but if Herb hadn't stopped me, I would probably have a much more popular but much less useful book. Like the, I think the graphic novel would have sold better because, hey, it's cool. Who, who, who wouldn't want to like read a graphic novel? But, um, but it would have been intimidating and it probably would have had the wrong effect because what I want to do with the innovation stack and with your podcast and with you know, all this media that I'm doing right now is, is just get people off the sidelines when they see. Like when you like go, go through your life, do everything you want, uh, copy everything, but there will be a couple of moments, just a couple, where you have the opportunity to advance humanity and do something that's never been done before. Maybe, I mean, maybe not. I don't know how you live, but like you're probably gonna live many, many years. You'll probably see a couple of those moments. If you see that moment, will you A, recognize it and B, understand what it takes to step across that line and do something that has not been done before? And if we can get a couple of million people who would not otherwise step across that line to step across that line, then the world's going to advance. Like that's what humanity needs. That's what's going to fix our problems. And I, and I just wanted to recruit a million people to join us. Well, there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, please take a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to see your feedback there. And for more inspiration, be sure to pick up a copy of the Innovation Stack and follow Jim at Jim McKelvey. Until the next time, dream big because you, my friend, are made for more.